session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I talk about the book for this past week, I want to announce the book for this coming week, which is Daring Greatly by Brené Brown. Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. And that's by Brené Brown. She has some um, very well-received TED Talks on topics like uh, vulnerability, which are really interesting. And this book looks at that. I haven't read it before, but I've heard good things and like some of the work that I've seen her do. So looking forward to finishing that book, and I'll talk about it on next Monday's show. But the book for this past week was The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. And I really, really enjoyed this book. Um, And I kind of joked last week that it continues my assault on happiness or my war on happiness um, where we realize or realizing that focusing on happiness or making that our goal is actually a problem and we've done that for a long time thinking that that's the goal of life right a lot of people think the goal is to be happy and when we think about happy what we really mean is like a feeling of ease or feeling good and it's positive feeling Um, but really as Emily Esfahani Smith argues in this book, what we should be looking for is meaning, to live a meaningful life rather than trying to live a happy life. And a few weeks ago, you might remember, I talked about the book, The Happiness Trap, and this idea that trying to be happy or thinking we're always supposed to be happy and making that our goal is a huge problem. Also, um, she talks about in this book as well, this feeling that if you're not happy, something is wrong with you which is not at all the fact or true, but that our focus instead should be shifting towards meaning anyway. And when you live a meaningful life, it involves feeling all of the emotions. Feeling happy will be part of it, but also feeling sad, uh, anxious, stressed, um, excited, nervous, angry, all sorts of emotions are going to be part of having meaning and really anything we do that has meaning that is significant is going to make you feel those things if you want to have children which very likely is the most rewarding thing if you want to have children that someone can do in their life the most meaningful thing that you can do it is also one of the most stressful things that you can do and when you undertake having children you're also creating the situation where lots of things can potentially go wrong you can 
uh, of very tragically have something happen to your child, but even without something seriously bad happening, there's constantly things you could have to be dealing with and stresses and worries and things that are part of being a parent. But in order to undertake this very meaningful challenge and experience of life that can give you a very strong feeling of fulfillment, you have to be ready to face those negative emotions that come with it. So it's important to recognize that anything that creates meaning in our life or any meaningful project or endeavor we undertake will almost definitely come with negative emotions as well. But the focus of the book is recognizing that we want to focus or shift our perspective from this happiness or a happy life to a meaningful life. And Emily S. Smith does a great job in the, in the book uh, using lots of stories and research to express the ideas that she has. And the way she describes it, there are four pillars to a meaningful life. So when she looked at all the research that looked at people who are living meaningful lives or what gave meaning to people, she found that, in fact, it was um, these four pillars that she describes. The first pillar is belonging, um, having this feeling of connection and relatedness to people around you and the world at large. And as she points out in the book, this feeling of belonging, unfortunately, in some ways is becoming harder and harder to experience in today's world. In the digital world, in today's day and age with social media, people think they're connected to a lot of people. You can go on Facebook and say, I have a thousand friends and I have this many followers here and these, this many followers there and I got retweeted three times and I texted with six different friends today. And so all in all, it seems like, wow, you really connected and communicated with so many people. But unfortunately, these are very superficial connections and communications, and they don't really give us this strong sense of belonging. They can, if more is, is given to them, or if we experience more with those individuals we're connecting with. But just those experiences alone, there really isn't that deep sense of belonging. And she shared some of the research where we see an increase in loneliness in recent uh, decades and generations. And very likely it has to do with the way we're becoming more alienated and that although technology and um, the digital age and the internet is a way that we can actually connect with people like we never could before, you can FaceTime and have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone who's uh, across the world, something that was not even thinkable just uh, maybe a few generations ago. But at the same time, it's created a lifestyle that makes people much more disconnected. And so one of the pillars of meaning that she, de she describes is a feeling of belonging, feeling like you belong and connect. And even relation, uh, research on happiness, and I know we're talking about meaning, but looking at people who are happier long term has found that relationships are what makes people happy long term, the best predictor. And it's the quality of the relationships, not the quantity. So again, that to me sounds like belonging and actual connection, not just having lots of people that you know or acquainted with, but having a deep sense of connection. So that's belonging, the first pillar that she describes. The second pillar is purpose. And I think for a lot of people, this is what we think of when we talk about a meaningful life. Um, but this is a very important one. And essentially, we can say this is some why to live for. 
So to use a paraphrase, a quote from Nietzsche that is also in Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, when you have a why to live for, you can withstand almost any how or any circumstances that you are put in. And Viktor Frankl was, of course, talking about his experience in concentration camps during World War II, where he saw that the people who survived were not necessarily the ones who were the phys most physically fit or the youngest or had some other type of skill that made them more likely to survive, but it was actually those individuals that had a why to live for, something that was pushing them to survive and make it out of the camp, whether it was their family, their wife and kids, or some type of work that they had, or uh, something. There was just something pushing them, and that was enable, enabled them to withstand what they were going through. Now, it's interesting when we talk about this why. First of all, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be your career or your work. If you can make that happen, that's wonderful. If you can make your career be your why and give you purpose, that can be very good, but not everyone can have that luxury. Maybe because of your financial circumstances or things going on in your life, your career isn't exactly your purpose. You can still find your purpose in other things through um, volunteering or things you do outside of your work. Of course, your family can be your purpose and your why. For many people, their children gives them a reason to live, a reason to um, be better and do better and contribute to the world and contribute to their family. So that can be your purpose. So it doesn't always have to be your career. It's great if you can love what you do and feel like it's giving you a sense of meaning, but it's not always the case for everyone. And even it doesn't matter what you do necessarily. What you do doesn't have to be extraordinary. When people think of purpose or having this why to live for, we often think of people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King and think that you have to do something extraordinary to be living a life of purpose, or it has to be something that makes you famous in order for you to live a life of meaning. But that's not necessarily the case. Many people live very meaningful lives uh, very quietly, people that you don't even know about. And in the book, um, she talks about people, for example, who work in a children's hospital cleaning the bathrooms. And if you ask them what they do, they say, I help heal the children. And in fact, they do because their work is necessary to help the hospital function to then help those children who are receiving treatment there. But you can just see a small shift in perspective can go from cleaning toilets and maybe thinking of it in a very negative way to this idea of I'm serving this purpose of making sure this hospital functions so that we can take care of these wonderful little children and give them the best treatment possible. So you can have a sense of purpose in anything that you can do. We can find meaning in our life, and that's something she touches on throughout the book. You can find meaning all around you. It doesn't be, have to be something that you get lucky to find or um, has to be thrust upon you. We can look and find the meaning in our lives. Um, another pillar out of the four is storytelling. And essentially, our lives, um, really, if we look at it, there is a narrative or a story we tell ourselves about our lives. And actually, I think it's interesting when we think about the research on memory, we find that although we think we remember our lives, the research shows us that our memories are pretty fallible and sometimes not quite accurate. So really, it is in a lot of ways a story 
that we're telling ourselves. And how we describe the story of our life is very important and can determine in a lot of ways how we feel about ourselves, our present and our future selves, our lives and what we expect. Um, she talks about how some people have, and research has found, when people have a redemptive story, or that's how the theme of their life is, they tend to have a more meaningful life. And what that means is that when they look at the hardships of their life, they don't see it as I was hurt by something that happened and it's left me hurt for the rest of my life. Um, yes, they recognize the pain and that they were hurt, but somehow they recognize the meaning they got in that loss or in that pain that actually has contributed to their life. Now, this doesn't by any means uh, mean that if you are to hurt someone, you're somehow doing a good thing because it gives them meaning or that we should create pain or suffering in our own life, but rather that when we face difficulties, we face hardships and tragedy, we can actually find meaning in it. And people who tell redemptive stories or see their life in that way tend to find more meaning in their lives. Um, and the fourth pillar is transcendence. That's, in essence, connecting with something bigger than yourself. And she describes it, you know, that it doesn't have to be necessarily a religious experience. For many people, that is um, what gives them a transcendent experience, is connection with their God or their understanding of God and religion gives them that transcendental feeling. But it doesn't have to just be that. She talks about uh, even astronauts who talk about seeing the earth from far away as this little, uh, you know, blue marble gives them what they call the overview effect, seeing the whole world in that way. And as they describe it, really, you can't see any borders between the countries. There is this feeling that we're all connected, that we are all one, um, that every one of us really is part of this thing together. And it makes them connect with something larger. Or even looking out into space itself can give people that feeling when they recognize the vastness of space and the billions of galaxies and stars and planets that are out there that we don't even know about a fraction of them, um, that can be a transcendental experience connecting us to something bigger. And in a lot of these transcendental experiences, when we experience transcendence, there's something that we can call ego death. Really, uh, we become selfless or we lose ourself in that moment when we connect to something bigger, or we connect to everyone. Um, and we have this type of experience of being at one with the universe, with the world, and that can give our life this feeling of meaning. Um, as I mentioned when I was reading the book last week and as I, I got to finish the book last night, it really is an excellent read, uh, well-researched, well-written, very easy to understand these important concepts. And I think it's so important for us to recognize the significance of this idea that this desire to live a happy life, to just feel good all the time or feel good and that's what matters most, is going to leave us actually feeling unhappy. And when we try to make ourselves uh, feel happy all the time or think that's the goal, we find that people become more unhappy. But if we shift our focus to meaning, living a meaningful life, living a life with purpose, living a life that matters, that's what we should be striving for. And that's why I think this book is so essential for people to read, and I hope people will read it. It's a new book, uh, came out this year, I think, in 2017. And so I mentioned this last week. If you haven't heard of it yet, it's not because it's a very, not a very good book, it's because it's a very new book. So I highly recommend this book. 
um, I think it can really give you some perspective. And it did for me, even though I've thought about this concept often about the importance of meaning and focusing on that rather than happiness. But I really uh, was impacted by this book. So thank you to Emily Esfahani Smith for writing this wonderful book. And if you're listening, I hope you'll read it, The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness by Emily Esfahani Smith. And again, the book for this week is Daring Greatly by Brené Brown. Hope you'll join me in reading that and in the discussion uh, a week from today. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. In the first segment, I talked about the book, The Power of Meaning by Emily S. Fahani Smith. And while I was reading the book, I thought about the common analogy that we use when trying to determine if someone is an optimist or a pessimist, asking if, do you see the glass as half empty or half full? Um, and my response always to that is yes. And by yes, I mean you should see both sides. Um, we should first be grateful for the half that is full, what we have, what we have accomplished, whatever there is in our life to be grateful for. We should be grateful for that and see that. So we must recognize the part that is half full. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we, um, in the name of positive thinking or to maybe using what I was talking about in the previous segment, just to feel happy or be happy, we tell ourselves this is great and that's it and stop it there. We must also see the part that's half empty and recognize there's still room for growth, room for um, making things better, for loving more, for living more, for doing all the things that we want to do in our life. So we recognize the half empty part as what life still has to give us, and actually more importantly, what we still have to give to life. And so we see both sides. So for me, it's not about just seeing one to see the cup as either half empty or half full, but rather to see both, to be grateful for what you have, but also want to strive and yearn for more um, from life and to give more to life. But as I read the book, The Power of Meaning, it made me think of another way of using this analogy about the cup and our lives. I think it's, it would be interesting to think of the cup as what we have to give, meaning that we each come to this world with a certain potential of love, of contributions, of um, relationships, of ways that we can give to the world, of ways that we can make the world a better place to make people's lives better in all different aspects and many ways that we can do that. And we're essentially born with this cup full, which is our full potential of what we can give. And our goal, our responsibility in life is to try to empty that cup as fully as possible, meaning that we give so much of ourselves that we give as much as we could. We contribute as much as we can. We love as much as we can. We uh, grow as much as we can. We help others grow as much as we can. Everything that we can contribute and give in some way, we do. And we leave 
this life with a fully empty cup, meaning we gave everything that we could to everyone that we could. Now, when I'm saying that and describing that, something that comes to mind is people that give, but not with the right motivation and not in the right way. And by that, I mean people who think they empty their cup out too quickly. Or even if we think of it another way, it's almost like they poke holes in the cup so that that the the life, you know, the water of life is coming out of them in every direction or too fast. And we see people like this who live their life like a martyr. They give and they give and they suffer and they don't take care of themselves and they keep giving and they think this maybe is the essence of what I'm talking about. That's not true giving because... Um, to give the most that you can, we also have to take care of ourselves. If you just keep giving in that way, you can give out maybe a lot for a very short period of time, but you're going to burn out. To use the analogy I've used many times before, it's like if you're on a plane and the oxygen masks come down, first of all, what do they tell you? They say if you're with a child, always put the mask on yourself first so you can then take care of your child. If in the midst of trying to put the mask on your child, you yourself pass out, well, then your child and yourself won't be taken care of. But if you make sure you're taken care of, then you can take care of your child. But if we extend this analogy, this person who thinks they're being so selfless, the oxygen masks drop and they start running around the plane, putting as many masks on to take care of as many people as they can. And they get to two or three people and then they pass out themselves. Um, and they can't help anyone else. And not only that, people have to now help that person, which is what happens with people who live their life that way. They start giving and giving and suffering, and the people around them see them suffering, and that makes them hurt. And then they eventually break down, and then now everyone has to take care of them. So it's not a loving and giving thing that they're doing, and their true motivation wasn't actually giving in the genuine sense of the word. But if we use that analogy, if you put that oxygen mask on yourself first. You can breathe fine. You're doing okay. You can take care of the whole plane for as long as is necessary. You can help as many people as you need to do or to need to help. And this is how we should live our lives as well. Not forget that actually in that loving that I'm talking about, we also have to love ourselves and make sure we're okay. Uh, to use the golden goose analogy that Stephen Covey uses in the seven, ha seven habits of highly effective people, um, you know, the farmer kept getting one egg every day that was golden and would sell it and was so excited, but then eventually kind of got a little um, greedy and wanted to get as much as he could at once. So he tore the goose open and maybe got three, four eggs, but now the goose was dead and he got no more eggs. And the same can be true of us. We're that golden goose. If we don't take care of ourselves, there's only so much we can give before we burn out. So keep that in mind that when I talk about giving of yourself as much as you can, it also includes giving to yourself in the sense that you continue loving yourself and making sure you take care of yourself. One, because you deserve it and you deserve to love yourself, but also because actually that will enable you to give even more. So again, if we poke holes in the cup to make sure we give so much as fast as possible, it really isn't even being used efficiently. It's pouring out in different directions rather than actually being uh, efficiently used. So we focus on our life or we look at our life um, by how much we can give. And this can actually itself be a shift in perspective for many of us who look at life and look at the way we approach relationships 
and everything we approach is how much can I get? How much can I take? How much can I receive? Even how much can I get for free? Or how much can I get without giving? Um, can I be in a relationship where the person gives me more than I give them? Great. Can I get something for free? Awesome. Let me see what I can do and get something for free. And we think that in a lot of ways, what makes us happy, uh, what will make us feel good, is to live a life where I get more than I give, where I get as much as possible. And we can assure you, and all the research will show you, that that is not the true path towards happiness or fulfillment or living a life of meaning. Having more things, getting more things, doesn't make us feel good long term. And even in relationships, if we get more than we give, it could feel good initially, but we won't feel good long term. It won't feel satisfying and fulfilling to be in a relationship that's one-sided or lopsided. It doesn't feel very good. So we want to experience life as a giver, not a taker, not someone who steals or tries to get more than they give. And we want to leave this life making sure we gave more than we received. Um, and as Eric Fromm says in The Art of Loving, giving is not better than receiving because giving is more painful and thereby somehow more noble or makes us a better person because we suffer in that way. But giving is better than receiving because through giving I feel my own vitality and my own strength and that good feeling that I get from actually giving that I get, uh, which is also why we should allow others to give to us as well, to give them that opportunity. But giving is better than receiving not because it's painful, but actually through that I get to feel the potency of myself and feel good in that process. And people who feel that they're living a meaningful life, they feel like they've given a lot, but given in a way that actually makes them feel good. They feel good about it. So we have to look at ourselves and think, am I giving everything I can to the people around me, to my relationships, the people who I love, my family? my romantic partner? Am I giving everything I can to this world? What are my strengths? What are my unique skills and abilities that I can give to society? I can give to people. I can contribute to this world in some way. And that really reflects or involves reflecting on ourselves and exploring ourselves and understanding who am I and who can I be? And we always talk about taking risks and trying to grow and taking on challenges. And we focus a lot on ourselves. And it's very true. The more we take risks, the more we allow ourselves to shine, the more we uh, explore and then express our abilities, our skills, our talents, our artistic abilities, the better we will feel, the more fulfilled we will feel. And that's wonderful. And we should explore that and we deserve to feel that way. But also we can recognize the benefit that we give to society when we tap into those skills. Think of the cancer researcher who um, devotes her life to finding cures or finding advancements and treatment to then save lives during her lifetime and lifetimes after her. And that's something that she's contributing. Um, and if we look at the flip side of people contributing is actually what the world gets deprived of. That same individual, if she did not apply herself, study hard, work hard, continue to work hard in this pursuit, well, the whole world would be deprived of the advancement that she was able to come up with along with her colleagues that then have helped 
or will help millions of people for years to come. So the world benefits from what you express, and also the world is deprived of what we could give, and we can recognize that, that we are actually, uh, we almost have a, it's our obligation to recognize who we are and to be the best that we can be for society and for the people around us. It's not just something that it would be nice or it sounds good or um, only if we're lucky it's going to happen. We should look at it as an obligation to give as much of ourselves as we can, to develop ourselves as much as we can, to become as strong as we can be, to make sure we give as much as we can to the rest of this world and to the people around us. You want to be a better, better husband, wife, um, father, mother, uh, because the people around you, your kids, your partners, they deserve the best you that they can get. And of course, you'll feel better being the best you as well. And the world deserves you to develop your skills the best that you can and to give to them or give to society and the whole world what you have. So when we look at your life, when you look at the end of your life, rather than focusing on the half full or half empty cup, we should actually hope we have a fully empty cup because we've given to the world everything that we had to give. Um, anyone that knows me knows that I love sports. I really enjoy watching sports. And there's a kind of cliche analogy where they say, well, we left it all on the field. We left it all out there on the field, meaning that we gave it everything we got. And for that, I'm proud. Even if we lost, I feel good about that. And that's how we want to live our lives or finish our lives, feeling that we gave it everything we had in a good way. I prepared the best I could. I did it the best way I could, and I tried my absolute hardest to give as much as I can give. And to me, if you do that for the right reasons and in the right ways, you're going to live a satisfied, fulfilled, and meaningful life, and you'll end your life feeling that I did everything I could, and I feel good about that. So let's all work on emptying our cups, making sure we give so fully of ourselves that when we get to the end of our lives, we feel like we had nothing left to give. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Oh, hello. Yes, hi. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Um, well, uh, I have a question about my marriage okay. issue, and then um, I want to begin that way, which, uh, like, I was born in Iran, mm-hmm. and uh, I was born and raised in a super liberal family uh, inside Iran. And then, um, like, I was only child. I didn't have any brother and sister, but I was, like, very strong and had a strong personality. I never... Uh, was dependent to my family or anyone. I was like every time driving my own car and take the car and my own and my parents' car to the like mechanic uh, or gas station or whatever. Then I was like 18. I was living in a dorm um, after entering the university because I was uh, studying in another city. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm working full time at the same time I was studying. And then um, now I'm in America um, almost two years. I'm doing my PhD in one of the uh, like good universities with high ranking in East Coast. And uh, before entering the country, I was married for two.
two and a half years in Iran. Uh-huh. Um, my husband, I cannot say he's like, well, I don't know how to argue about it. I mean, he's a nice guy and he loves me, but uh, in his own way. Like, he has born in super, super controlling family. His dad was a member of army and then all his life, he was like controlling, over controlling him and hating him. And even after our marriage, they never uh, see him as independent person, mm-hmm. and either me. So we had big, big issues in our marriage. Um, well, and then back in, even when we were living together, I several times wanted to divorce and get out of that marriage, but he never let me. And sometimes he was... He never super- let you? Yes. What do you I mean? In yes. Iran? Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, so, but when I said I'm going to continue my education outside the country, he was, he encouraged me to do that, like, uh, because... By the way, let me, how old are you and how old is he? I'm 30 and he's 32. Okay. Yep. And then, um... So he said he encouraged you? Yeah, he did. Okay. You know, he's that kind of person... When we are in the public, he's super polite and nice to me every time. But when we are at home, uh, he sometimes gets very aggressive. Like, in the public, he's very happy to say, like, I'm the person I encourage my wife to go outside to study abroad and then cover her costs. And then I'm that kind of person. But when we are at home... uh, he changes a lot. Okay. Now, did he come with you to the United States? No, he didn't. Yeah, that's the issue. He okay. didn't come. And then, um, why was, didn't he I come? Mean, no, no, no. No, why he, didn't he, he come? Why was that the reason? Oh, why oh okay. Come? Well, um, first of all, because I uh, applied for the student visa, and the chances if you apply for a uh, whole family is very rare, and then they might deny your visa. So we decided to. Um, apply for the visa separately, like me first, and then I he can join me later. Okay. Um, but the thing is, now I'm almost like half of the way, so I would graduate in two, almost less than two years, maybe. Um, and I'm doing very well, and I have good uh, connection with my professors, and then I, I'm almost sure my studies would be um, pretty good here after graduation. But when I'm thinking of his joining me and his coming here, uh, the fact is I never feel happy about that at all. That's like, a big. That's a big sign. When yeah. you, I mean, when you, I mean, just, I mean, hear what you're saying. You're saying when I think about living with my husband, I get very sad or I don't get a good feeling. That that's okay. That that definitely concerning. That it seems like not only did you want to come study, but maybe you wanted to escape from your husband to some degree. Exactly, that's the thing. So how long, then, in the, the few years you've been in the United States, how often have you seen him? Well, um, well, just once I went back, because my visa is multiple visas, so I could <laughs> get back on Christmas break. So <laughs> first two, three days, he was very good. But after two, three days, he was almost the same person, like coming back from work and then uh, like watch the TV whole day. And I was like, hey, I'm here. I'm just living in like 10 days, and you can watch that TV how, how I mean, as much as you want, but you know what I mean? Like, your mm-hmm. wife is living in 10 days, so 
why don't we hang out? Why don't we talk to each other? But he was like, I don't know, that kind of person. He, he, at the same time, you know, the thing is, well, um, I feel like he sometimes sacrificed a lot for me and my education. So it's why I feel uh, it's difficult for me to get out of this relationship. However, I was talking to a friend of mine. She said, I feel like it's sort of toxic relationship. Like you say, he covers your cost, he helps. However, my family are like, uh, they they are economically in the position they can cover all my costs. Mm -hmm. So there's no need for him in that point. Uh, but he, every single time we talk to each other, he uh, keeps saying, like, when I'm coming to join you, so uh, I just, it's the only goal in my life. And also, I am the only person, exactly. I myself, I have lots of friends, lots of, like, even if now I miss him or I miss my family, I can survive. I'm sure I can survive because I can make new connections. I can people okay I mean I'm, I'm sure you can survive without him but what I'm trying to what I want to know is did you were you very in love with him at some point in the, the marriage uh, sorry sorry Would you please repeat sure were you in love with him or very strongly in love with him at some point in the marriage no and also um, the, the other thing is um, we never, ever had good sexual relationship. I mean, for him, maybe it's as good, but for me, um, not at all. What do you mean it's not good for you? Uh, I had zero pleasure. Okay. And did he seem to have any awareness of that, or did he seem um, to care? I, um, I, I don't think so. I okay. don't know. Well, and it seems like in general you feel that way, that he doesn't seem to care so much about how you feel, um, the yeah. way you describe things. So he doesn't seem like someone, and maybe you might be too someone who doesn't really want to be that you know, close to someone or have a, a relationship where it's very involved. Um, maybe the way you described his family, he's used to just relationships being about like controlling or, um, you know, just being next to each other but not really being close to each other and you were only child yourself maybe you didn't have many experiences either what what made you get married to him what attracted you to him when you when you met him to get married well i was 27 when i was married and i was living in dorm and working full time and so i was feeling like um i don't know maybe maybe like now i just think that way in that time i was not well, I feel like maybe I just get bored of living in the dorm and then wanted to settle down and feel like, well, okay, I'm 27 and then that's enough. I should find someone and settle down and that's it. Maybe. I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, maybe that's the reason. It sounds like a not very convincing like reason to get married, but maybe that that was it. But from what you described, you were never very, you were not really in love with him. Yeah, so, exactly. So you just got married, you're saying, because you think it was, quote-unquote, the time or time to settle down? Sort of, yeah. yeah. That's okay, so there, also, so there's not much of a relationship here? Yes. Okay, do you have a desire to have kids? Of course I do. Okay, of course you do. Do you want to have children with him? Um, I, I don't think so. Okay, um, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Have you guys talked about having kids together? Um, the thing is, like, he, uh, when I ask him, you know, when you are just 
when you are in a relationship every time dominant and you are the person you just um you are aggressive or whatever so you are maybe always happy of that relationship so whenever i tell him well i'm not happy from this marriage he was super happy and and the thing is i don't know how to approach him and telling him well i don't want to continue this relationship because he he's a person um I am the only only person in his life, and then he doesn't have good relationship with his family at all, and zero friends. And then I don't know if he, I tell him he might do something crazy, or like how can he handle it? Like like, cr- like a depression, or I don't know. He, he might. He like, might. But you're um, first of all, it doesn't seem like he's doing so great right now. But and you're not really giving him much right now in this relationship or whatever you want the marriage you guys have but you we can never stay in a relationship to protect someone from feeling pain that's not a relationship or a reason to stay in a relationship we have to want to be with the person and uh, usually when we say that that we're trying to not hurt them we're really one it's often to avoid our own pain and other times it's to uh because we can't handle it or we don't know how to handle the situation so we almost blame them but you're not being nice to him by not ending the relationship if you don't want to be in it and well, and and you know you have to and you need to be with someone and maybe you haven't asked him to give him this chance who cares if you're unhappy in the relationship that has to matter to your your partner it can't be something that they don't care about now did you tell him i'm unhappy in this marriage i did back in iran okay I did. and what was his response like um well, he was just trying to keep me in the marriage again, and then. But what does that mean? He would say, "What do you want, and I'll do it," or? No, no, I was not happy at all. Here, I'm alone. I'm by myself. I don't have any family around me. I have like, uh, you know, I I have lots of problems, and. But no, but here, my 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 question was like, when you say he would try to keep me in the marriage, how would he try to keep you in the marriage? Well, um. Like, like, let's say when we had arguments at home and I was super upset and wanted to leave home, he didn't let me, like, push or lock the door. Or, oh, so he yeah. physically wouldn't let you um, leave the house? Yes, yes. Okay, so that's not really keeping you in the marriage. That's literally keeping you inside of the home. Yeah. and, and maybe was, maybe he ever, was he ever physically abusive? Sort of. Maybe I was not that strong to leave. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the case. Wait, but were you? You were physic. He was physically abusive, or he was not. Uh, sorry, what's that? F- physically abusive. Did he ever hit you? Uh, no, not okay. hitting, but something like push or. Mm-hmm. Well, that that doesn't sound very good either. But yeah, it does I get the feeling you didn't have the strength to leave it? I'm not saying for sure you have to leave, but the way you're describing it, that. You've been away from him a couple years. Uh, yeah, I can understand how you didn't feel good when you went back to see him and he didn't show a lot of interest in spending time with you and being close to you when you were only going to be there for 10 days. Um, but it doesn't seem like you have a strong desire to be with him or almost actually not strong, any desire to be with him. And really, if that's the case, as I said before, you can never stay with someone because you're afraid of their reaction or how they're going to feel 
Uh, are they going to get what depressed? If, what about like I promised him to go and study abroad and either come back or uh, bring him to this country, and then I feel like it's. I know it's maybe ridiculous, ridiculous, but I feel like maybe it's not fair to him. Like, well, well I mean. Uh... I I understand you're saying that you made a promise to him and you want to keep it, but you know you maybe you shouldn't have made that promise. But it's also just things have changed. The marriage, first of all, it seems like the marriage was never good. You always were unhappy in it, which is worth looking at why you entered the marriage in the first place. I hope you um, have thought about that and also consider going to therapy to look more at what's going on. But you, you can't just stay in a marriage and say, "Well, I told him," you know. Look, when people get married in America, for example, they say, till death do us part. We're going to be married till we die. But then people get divorced. Almost half of people get divorced. So they can't say, well, I can't get a divorce from him or her because I said, till death do us part. Yes, we, you right. made that promise, but things have changed in your relationship. I get it. You said specifically, I'm going to go there and you're going to come. But the the marriage is just not working out. And if he comes there, it's going to be even worse for him. Think about him. Uh, leaving his whole life and family behind, coming to the United States. And then if you want to end the marriage and send him back or whatever he decides to do, that's even worse. So think about everything he has to go through to come here. Again, this is if you decide you don't want to be with him, which I think you should, of course, think about some more and think about going to therapy to really uh, think about this issue and explore it more deeply. But if you don't want to be with him, don't make him come to the United States and then end the relationship. If you have you know, after not seeing your husband this long, don't have a desire to see him. Either you have an issue with being close to someone and you feel safer when he's far away, or you really don't love him and he's not the right person for you. But either way, you shouldn't force it. And so I can't tell for sure in the brief time we talked if some of it is also you and that you being so comfortable being far away from him is actually because you have a fear of intimacy and closeness and you don't want to be with anyone, maybe being partially that the only child partially has made you more comfortable alone than with someone. Uh, I don't know if that's the case, but I would be very, you know, I think it's very unfair to make him come all this way and go through all that trouble of moving to the United States if you're not sure you want, or not even not sure you don't want to be with him. So really think about that carefully. And remember, you're not doing him a favor by staying married to him. That should never be how you stay with someone, to do them a favor or to not hurt them, whether it's marriage or any relationship. I actually just looked at the time. I do have to end the show. Uh, maybe we can talk another time, but I uh, wish you the best in determining what to do. Okay. And, um, I have to wrap up the show. I, I, uh, I'm actually past oh, okay. the time. But thank you for okay, calling. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. We've reached the end of tonight's program. Thank you to the caller and the listeners out there. And I'm here, here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.